Dotnet Rocks episode 793 with guest Brian Harry. Recorded live Tuesday, August 7th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Mr. Campbell, how are you, sir? I've been actually in honor of our guests, although not actually in honor of our guests, but it happened to work out this way. Did North Carolina pulled pork on the weekend? (laughs) How cool is that? Yeah, yeah, got a couple of pork shoulders, got a nice spicy rub on them, smoked them for 10 hours with a clear vinegar sauce. You're listening way. to Barbecue Rocks at barbecuerocks.com. Yeah, hey, yeah, you know what I you know what I've been doing? What have you been doing? Get I've been having some I every once in a while I just thank my lucky stars that I'm a programmer because I'm using Adobe Premiere, right? And yep. um we recently got a big video contract to do video editing, so I had to increase my staff, but a lot of them aren't as computer savvy as they are video editing savvy, you know? Which is interesting. And, yeah, we, and, and we have to do a large amount of file, deal with a large amount of files, and all the file names have to be right, and there's a lot of repetitive work. So rather than leave it up to uh, the editors to sort of pull the right files from the right place for every little project, because there's a lot of projects, I basically figured out how Adobe Premiere saves their data as XML and did a basically created a template, took all the data out from a project that I wanted the right way set up, and just did a search and replace on it, and wrote a little program so that they just can just click a click the name of the uh, the the file they want to edit, and it whoom copies all the files from the right place, gets the settings together, writes a template, launches Premiere with the project, and it's like brainless easy. It's great. Awesome. So I just love that. You know, just being able to take, uh, uh, you know, the XML file format and use it where it may not have been intended to be used. But the fact that you can just do that, I just think well, that's Well, just great. code your way out of a problem. Exactly. You know? I like just one of those things and it has nothing the the video stuff has nothing to do with programming but just it's just wonderful having those tools under your belt when you need them so let's get together right now right here for a little thing we call you better know a framework awesome and of course what do you got uh, well usually I'm talking about things in the .NET framework today I'm back at CodePlex and I I found this awesome project and that's literally what it's called awesome.codeplex.com it, the product is actually called ASP.NET Awesome and you can find their website at ASP.NETAwesome.com what it is is a rich set of helpers or controls that you can use to build highly responsive and interactive AJAX enabled web apps the helpers include autocomplete AJAX dropdown lookup multi lookup AJAX form AJAX radio list AJAX checkbox list, date picker, confirm dialog, pop-up form, and pager. So they're all jQuery Ajax helpers. Nice. PNET MVC. Awesome. So, you know, I just went looking, and a lot of people like it. There's some good reviews, five-star reviews. So there you go. That's cool. Yep. 
And, you know, on the downside, it's a dead project. Why do you say that? Well, there's a whole bunch of good reviews, and then there's a one-star review that says, this open source project is dead. The source has not been updated for a very long time, and the author has created a commercial version. But you know what? That smells like an opportunity, because it is an open source project. Yeah, sure. And it it was updated in January of this year, right? So it's not that old. It's not that old. And it's cool. You know, there's the source. Go for it. Modify it. Send it back. That's what it's all about. Do what you want to do, yeah. Yeah. Look at that. There's yeah. Dead is a relative concept, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's right. So who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of this will amuse you. I know it will. Grabbed a comment off of uh show seven sixty four, which was the one we did with Mr. Ted Neward. Yep. I think the one where I accused him of being a grumpy old man. Grumpy old man. That's right. And uh, and Eric Swanson, I think, feels pretty much the same way because he said, I was so disappointed to hear Ted keep pounding on his message of what's new in .NET 4 or 5 other than async and await. Uh, because F-sharps had significant enhancements with query expressions and type providers. Core web libraries have been improved to include the web API and MVC4, mm-hmm. local DB providers, and other enhancements. And how about writing portable libraries that work on .NET Core, WinPhone, Silverlight, oh. and Xbox? Yeah, portable libraries is a huge thing. It's unbelievable. Aside from the framework, tooling enhancements were huge. They pushed light switch and blend into Visual Studio and rethemed major components while improving productivity by incorporating some power tool extension ideas and rethinking Team Explorer and introducing new project templates, mm-hmm. just to name a few. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, wow, you know, we could talk to Brian Harry and get even more new things <laughs> that are not about async and await in Visual Studio 2012. Yes, we could. And as it turns out, he's our guest today. Yeah. So, Eric, thank you so much for your comment on the site. A mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a coveted .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with nearly 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, 12 to 15 new courses every month, a free 10-day trial, 200 minutes of access to the library, full curriculum on software practices, including design patterns, test-first development, object-oriented design, continuous integration, and Scrum, and just about anything else that you can think of that you need to learn. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce for the second time uh, on our show, Brian Harry. He's a Microsoft technical fellow working as the product unit manager for Team Foundation Server, a server-based product designed to dramatically improve the productivity, predictability, and agility of software development teams by ensuring that all team members have easy access to the information they need to make the right decisions at the right time. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good, good to be back. Last time we talked, we were in North Carolina on a stage during the last road trip. And, I remember. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Lots of new stuff to talk about. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been a while, and, you know, a lot of people, a lot of stuff happens in that much time. Well, I, I got to think you're the guy to give us sort of an overarching vision of what were you trying to do with the ALM story this time around? Yeah, I can definitely do that. I'm happy to. You know, there was a couple of things. Before I get to that, I wanted to, you know, I, I listened to you kind of go over some of the stuff that was not async in, in .NET and some of the cool sure. stuff that we did in 20, uh, 2012. And, you know, there were uh, a couple of things that you didn't mention that seemed to me like big omissions that I wanted to make sure to get in there. 
one of them, of course, was all the the huge amount of perf work we did in Visual Studio to just make the overall experience, whether it's loading projects or IntelliSense or anything, just snappier and more responsive. Um, that was a big investment for us, this release. And obviously, with all the feedback we got at the end of the last release about um, you know performance not being where people wanted it to be, it was something that was really important to us to get right. Well, if I remember correctly, you actually delayed the delivery of Studio to address some of those performance concerns. Mm-hmm. In 2010, we did. In 2012, yeah. we really focused on it from the beginning and made sure we never got in that state again. Right. That's right. And, you know, the other one that obviously was a huge investment for us in 2012 was all the Windows 8 support for the the, the new Windows 8 store apps and uh, and all of that. It was, it was a a big, big undertaking for us. We partnered very closely with Windows on that. Yeah, it seems a very interesting release this time around. That the, the Windows team and and the Studio team have been really in lockstep. I've got to think that was a challenge too. It's a lot of people to coordinate. Yeah, no question. It was you know it's something we haven't done in you know probably a decade where we really ran that closely aligned of of an overall Visual Studio release with a a major Windows release with the degree of codependence. I mean, we were were running these things where we did uh, monthly builds with Windows that had to be matched up every month. Um, And there was this delicate dance of handing, you know, build pieces because we'd have to build stuff that they would then have to use to build, which then they would build stuff that we would have to use to build. Right. So there was this weird circular dependency that required, you know, a, a, a little uh, a hula dance every day to, to make sure that it that it worked. But, um, you know, every month, like clockwork, we kicked out new builds that were matched builds of Visual Studio and Windows. Well, and I, I was talking before about this, that I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in some of those meetings where where you guys between the Windows team and developer team were just sort of hashing out where things are going and how they're going to be architected because those are really geeky technical things, but they make such a big difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a you know, the the WinRT stuff is uh, is an important new programming model that enables a new kind of app and and you know requires uh, some, you know, some different ways to think about how you build and architect your app. You got to think about the app life cycle in a, you know, in a whole different way. So yeah, definitely very interesting conversation. So I'm looking at the visual studio page, um, the, the web page, microsoft.com visual studio and yeah. the, the sort of the ALM overview and looking at some of the, the press that Microsoft has gotten and, and ratings and things like that. I guess, uh, Gartner was your friend recently, uh, in an evaluation <laughs> yeah. of vendors. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, um, so, you know, we, we sort of started down this ALM path, uh, really about 2003, knowing that we were entering kind of a space that had been around for 10 or 15 years, and we had a lot to do, uh, to even just get to the point where, uh, we had a competitive offering, much less a, a leading offering. Right. Um, we picked, uh, you know, a particular, um, angle on, uh, on the problem, which was, we recognized that the problem people had is there were a lot of point products that solved the various problems that, that the people had in the life cycle, but that they just integrated together very poorly. And it was hard to, you know, to get your developers and your testers and your, 
your project managers and your business analysts operating on the same set of data and communicating effectively. And that was kind of our core secret sauce, as it were, which is, hey, let's really identify all the people and let's make sure we build something that enables them all to work together more effectively, kind of the... you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts argument. Well, I got to think and, that must be a, you know, that's really Microsoft's forte is being as large as you are and as organized as Microsoft is to be able to take on those big multi-project projects, you know, yeah, multiple teams yeah. and stay focused. Yep. So, you know, 2000, you know, so we did 2005, which I, which was sort of V1 of that vision 2008 was, I think of as kind of V1.1. It was a, it was a pretty small release for us. Um, 2010 was V2 and 2012, uh, you know, is V3. And it is, you know, in a lot of ways, it is kind of the, I, I think, and uh, you know, maybe I'm being a little, uh, a little presumptuous here, but it is kind of, you know, the Microsoft pattern of V3. We kind of get it right. critical mass. We get it right. And, and sort of everything's fallen in place. Uh, people really like it. Uh, the analysts are now rating us both, uh, you know, leading on execution and vision. Um, the, the breadth and completeness of the solution is industry leading. Um, you know, we're, we're super, super proud of what we've accomplished. Um, and of course, the job's nowhere near done. The, you know, in the meantime, um, the, the ecosystem of applications have changed and we see people uh, you know, whereas in 2000 and, you know, three, 2005, when we started, you know, the hot thing was building web apps. And in the meantime, this thing called devices, uh, came out. And now people are building these apps that are an amalgam of, you know, backend services plus HTML web apps plus device experiences and figuring out how to create an, an overall lifecycle solution that enables you um, to address the needs of that new app category is, um, you know, is a challenge and, and something we're we're going to do a great job at. So walking through the 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 ALM, the application lifecycle, um, the the tools all sort of work together, as you said, from the business analyst tool to the developer tools, the architecture tools. What are some of the the stories in 2012? That we can sure. uh, that we can talk about in particular. Well, yeah, we made a, we made investments really kind of all over the life cycle. So I'll, I'll kind of run through them in, uh, in in kind of a waterfallian life cycle order. But um, but understand, it's not the way we think about the world. We think about the world as very iterative, and kind of all phases are 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 happening in tight cycles. But more agility, some order. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You have to pick some order to talk about things, so I'll kind of go in that order. Um, okay. So, you know, one of the investments we made is understanding, hey, one of the big problems in development teams today is the communication between the, the development team and uh, the sort of the, the customer, uh, the person who you're building it for. And um, we wanted to make sure we were providing some good tools to help to facilitate that communication and, and make sure we don't end up with the, you know, kind of the traditional problem of, you know, I built what you asked for, but not what you wanted. And uh, so, you know, investments we made in that space include things like a storyboarding tool that enables you to really quickly and easily iterate on designs, review them with your, with your stakeholders, you know, update them, 
uh, and converge on something that you kind of all agree, yep, this is the user experience, this is the flow I want to have through my app, this is the data I want to collect, these are the visualizations I want to provide, um, and then, you know, make sure that when you build it, it is, you know, it, it is what they want. Right? So sort of one of the big investments. Uh, another one is uh, kind of, you know, around the problem of, of what I call um, feedback on priorities. Like, you know, I can I can agree what you want. We may agree on what you want, but, um, you know, I may be thinking, all right, that's going to take me, you know, a year to get through all that you've just asked for. And if I go off and start working on that, um, it may be that for the the first three months, I spend building the lowest priority stuff that you want. So sure, it would be nice if there were an easy way for us to kind of collaborate and make sure that we both have a clear view of what the priorities are. And of course, through a project, priorities change. So you, you need to be able to have some visibility around those changing priorities. So we built um, a, capabil- a set of capabilities around Agile project management. We've got a, um, a, a, a new web UI that provides uh, backlog management with simple you know, drag-and-drop reordering, easy ability to organize that work into sprints, decompose that, um, that sprints into tasks. We've got a task board for managing kind of the daily sprint stand-up activity, so kind of a full Scrum-like uh, Agile project management experience um, for uh, managing the project and being very clear and transparent about um, about what's happening. Now, these are things that we've had before, or the task board is. Tell, tell us the task board is new. So we've had work item tracking, and we had in 2010 we had this thing called the Agile project management workbooks, which were an Excel, a set of Excel spreadsheets, um, which. Uh, enabled you to do agile project management, but it was not nearly as smooth, not as streamlined. So, for example, if I wanted to reorder tasks, I couldn't just drag and drop the task uh, to where I wanted it to be. I had to kind of do Excel, cut, copy, paste, reorder the the priority column to have that, uh, you know, reorder it. It was more painful. Um, now it's just super fluid and easy. So is that is a task board sort of like a, a Kanban thing? Um, it's similar, but it's a little different. So Kanban is, is also uses a board, um, but there are a couple differences. Generally in Kanban, you don't do, you don't break your stuff down into sprints. You can, but you gen, it's generally not kind of a sprint oriented plan. It's more of a flow oriented plan. Secondly, Kanban tends to, um, uh, be much more uh, fluid about states, so I, I tend to create more states, and I and the the sort of core of Kanban is to is to track uh, work in progress in the various states and set limits that says, hey, I'll only have so much work in a given state, and when I see more than that amount of work, we call it work in progress limits. When you see more than that amount of work building up in a particular state. And that says you've got a bottleneck and you need to rethink the, the way your system is flowing. And then, you know, your kind of core diagram you track is what's called a cumulative flow diagram. Whereas in Agile, you tend to, or in Scrum, you tend to not look so much at how much work is in each state and you, um, you tend in general to use fewer states and your core sort of diagram is your burndown chart. I, yeah. you know, I, I sort of planned this much work. And over the sprint, here's kind of how I worked down that that amount of work. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I interrupted. So, I interrupted you with the whole task uh, board thing. So we were talking about some good. of the other features. Yeah. So uh, those are kind of you know at the, the 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 sort of front end of the life cycle, if you want to think of it that way. Um, we also did uh, a ton of stuff for kind of the daily um, lather, rinse, repeat cycle of development. Um, in addition to kind of the agile project management stuff I talked about, um, we did things like um, code review, which is the uh, ability is if I'm going to make some changes, I want to uh, just have somebody look at it and, you know, second pair of eyes, make sure I didn't miss anything stupid. Um, or conversely, maybe I just want to keep an eye on stuff that's ha- changing in the project because I'm new to the team and I want to kind of learn what people are changing, what the active parts of the code are, mm-hmm. why people are making changes. I can watch the code reviews and see what changes that people are making. I can have uh, interactive conversations about it. There's kind of a little IM-like mechanism that allows me to comment on various changes and, and, uh, and have, uh, you know, interactive conversations about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty excited about that. Um, we also did uh, some cool work in uh, the version control space to streamline the version control experience. You know, it was really kind of V3 of the version control experience where over the years we'd gotten a number of feed, a number of uh, sort of pieces of feedback about how um, the version control was uncomfortable. The the fact that you had to have your files be read only, the fact that you had to check everything out, which meant if I was in a tool that didn't have version control integration, like you know Notepad or something, it was annoying because mm. I'd open the file and I'd try to save and it would say, "Ah, oh, the files read only." Mm. Um, right. So we kind of fixed that with a feature we call local workspaces. That you know your files are writable. You want to change it, you just start editing it and in any tool that you want. And then when you go to check in, we'll figure out what you changed and we'll make sure we check in all the changes that you made. Um, so that was a that was a very very popular feature. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who want me to tell you all about Team Pulse. Is customer feedback at the heart of your development process? Are you looking for an easy way to integrate that feedback into your Microsoft TFS projects? Well, Telerik offers a simple and cost-effective solution to this problem. It's called the Ideas and Feedback Portal and comes as an extension of Telerik's agile project management tool, Team Pulse. The Ideas and Feedback Portal helps teams engage with external stakeholders like users or clients by capturing their feedback in the form of ideas, bug reports, feature requests, and votes, and allowing for a virtually real-time collaboration with your development team. Feedback collected by the Ideas and Feedback Portal can easily be turned into requirements or bugs and synchronized with your TFS project for you and your team to work on. So from now until the end of June, Telerik offers a 10% discount for .NET Rocks listeners for any purchases of the Ideas and Feedback Portal. For more information, go to Telerik.com slash DNR, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Actually, I wouldn't mind jumping back a little bit and talking a little on the modeling side. You know, we talked about the storyboarding piece, which I think is very cool, but that storyboard doesn't necessarily equate into to code or or does it does it go to does it become UML is there a path there No it it doesn't become code these really are just pictures they are intended to it, it's it, in fact the tool is based on powerpoint and it is intended to really be a visualization tool 
Um, you know, if you want to get something more uh, more rigorous than that, then we would imagine that somebody like a you know a business analyst or a very non technical person mm-hmm. would be kind of working with the customer to very rapidly iterate on the the, the visuals, and then somebody more technical would pick up a tool like um, uh, Sketch Sketchflow. Uh, Sketchflow, thank you. I'm drawing a blank. Sketchflow and and sort of do a prototype, which would then be able to flow into you know your actual production product. Okay. Um, yeah. So, but I'm glad you mentioned the architecture tools because that was actually the next thing on my list. We did do a bunch sure. of investment there as well. Um, you know, we introduced in 2010 a bunch of cool architecture tools: the Architecture Explorer. Um, the UML diagrams, the layer diagrams, um, and people liked them and they said, this is really cool, but they started to have scalability problems when they started using them on, you know, large projects that had been underway for a long period of time. So we took, uh, and there were two sort of, uh, I'd say two categories of scalability problems. One was the tool would become slow because of the amount of data that it was having to crunch over, uh, and, and, uh, and, We'd also sort of memory uh, problems because we tried to load the entire model in memory as we as we reasoned over it. Mm. Uh, and two, we had some UI scalability problems. The, the diagrams just got huge, and you know it was hard to see the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. So uh, we sort of worked on both in uh, in 2012, where we put a database backend behind the the uh, the, the model. Which allows us to incrementally load the model into memory as we as we need to work on it, which means we can work with essentially arbitrarily large application models. And and then secondly, we did uh, a bunch of work around progressive rendering so that we can just render the subsets or the pieces of the model that you care about, uh, which makes it much easier for you to to manage these you know very very large applications and focus on just the pieces that you care about. So well, and that's the real life challenge, right? Is that we every prototype or sample model we build is always small enough to fit on a screen, and real apps never are. That's right. So that's I take right. I take it from the way that um, you answered the question about you, Richard's question about UML, that um, m- people aren't using UML. Uh, well, less people are using UML to cr- to generate to drive code. Is that really true? I mean, you can do it, but I guess there's yeah, still some limitations. It, and I think in some people do it. Um, you know, we don't support the round tripping uh, to be able to, you know, round trip from UML to code back to UML. And I think that has, you know, that provides some limitations for some people. But you know, often um, the, uh, uh, you know, I think of our, our UML tools as, as being really strong at two things. One, providing you um, a, a way to articulate your design. Um, they're very good at that. People use it for that, uh, and I think are, are very happy with it. It's also very useful as a way to understand your code. So let's take um, the sequence diagram as an example. I can very quickly and easily take some piece of code. Maybe I'm new to it, and I'm not sure I understand how this code works. I just you know right-click on a method and say, generate a sequence diagram, and it'll generate me kind of the whole flow of what the you know what methods that calls, what data's passed between them, kind of the flow of of that whole tree of method calls to understand how it works, and that then provides me a way to be able to to, to sort of navigate to 
the right pieces of code and focus in on what I care about. So I think there's kind of two modes in which those architecture tools are really valuable for people. Well, in in the documentation, it's kind of weird because it says you can generate C-sharp code from UML class diagrams. And then it also says right under that, you can create UML class diagrams from existing code but there's no round trip. So that means there That's must right. be some sort of lacking in UML, uh, you know, in terms of not being able to describe completely all, all situations that can exist in code. Yeah, I, I think it's not, it's not that it's just not possible. It's just that we haven't uh, done all the work to make that a seamless experience. Yeah. And I, I just don't hear a lot of people doing that these days. When it yeah, first came out, it was really exciting. And I remember, you know, I guess it was Rational, right, that had that big UML yep. framework? Yeah, Rose. Yeah, Rational Rose. Yeah. Yeah. Old yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, All right, know, so we've touched on the sort of architecture pieces, and we've talked a little bit about the iterations of uh, yep. setting up burndowns and going through there. Should we head to the back end of this, getting into builds? Yeah, I will. Let me let me mention just a couple more things in the middle that I that I want to call out. One is um, sure. the what we call my work, which is sort of a redesign of the Team Explorer you mentioned that really enables me to to focus better on my work. Um, it enables uh, me to. We added uh, this ability to sort of capture the state of my IDE and and save it away and restore it. So. We talk about uh, kind of the problem of constantly getting interrupted and restoring your context. Mm. Um, this new capability allows me to, to sort of stash away my entire IDE state, what files I have open, what breakpoints I have set, what bookmarks I have set. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, Brian, I really need you to go look at this bug, I can really easily set, a work, set aside the work I'm working on, go take a look at it, you know, maybe fix it, check it in, and then, you know, with a single action, restore that entire state back and, and be back to exactly in the zone where I was. Hmm. Um, so that's that's super cool. Another super cool thing we did was the um, code clone detection. So, you know, how often have you run across some piece of code and you're like, man, I think I've seen this elsewhere. Right. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, where it was. And then you're kind of uh, searching through it, looking. Well, code clone detection is a great, uh, ability to sort of look for uh, code refactoring opportunities. It'll search through all your code. It'll look for code that looks similar. So it's, it's not doing, you know, any string-based comparison. It actually parses the code, understands the type system, huh. and is looking for code that's structurally equivalent. And so it might actually be different types. It might be calling slightly different methods, but it's structurally equivalent and therefore represents a good opportunity for uh, potential refactoring. You know, are you, are you uh, actually another, working at like the ahead. IL layer when you do that? Um, yeah, it's actually working at the type system layer. So it understands right. what the types are and, and what the structure of it is. Great. It understands That's both the clever. structure of the types and the structure of the code flow. Did, would that also, I mean, implies that it could be in different languages. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That would be um, spooky. We, we, yeah. Uh, there's there's the whole cut and paste code problem where people are grabbing chunks of code and pasting them around, and that's obviously going to create yep. duplication. But I just love yep. the idea that one guy's working in VB.net, one guy's working in C sharp, or heaven forbid F sharp, and, and they end up writing the up. same thing totally different ways. Clippy pops yeah, up to yeah, the yeah. VB developer, "Hey, Bob's working on this same code right now. <laughs> Would you like to paste <laughs> his <Right>. code in?" <laughs> 
That's yeah, or cool. even better, would you like to refactor his code and reuse it? Yeah, uh, right. Having two copies of every Bug Bob wrote. <laughs> better to have Spooky. one copy of Bob's Bugs than two. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I won't keep going, but we, we did a ton ton of work kind of at the core developer productivity space, um, and we're, we're, we're super happy uh, with that. Um, and then, yeah, you, you sort of said about, you know, downstream – uh, you know, we also did a bunch of investments in the testing space. Um, one of our cool new testing features uh, is exploratory testing. So, you know, in 2010, we introduced sort of our, our first holistic testing uh, solution that included test planning and test case management and test run management and lab management and all of that stuff. It gives me, you know, a good solution for sort of the classic, very planful, let me you know, start with a with a test specification and and work through you know kind of my test plan through delivery of the product. But as you know, as Agile has grown, more and more we're seeing people who who want to take sort of lighter weight, uh, sort of more ad hoc approaches to testing as they are to development as well, and or maybe more incremental rather than ad hoc is maybe a, a better way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and exploratory testing is a capability that essentially allows you to start, rather than starting at a test plan, you start at a user story and say, okay, the developers just checked in, you know, the user story to, you know, the shopping cart user story. So I'm going to go play with the, with the shopping cart and, and go see what I think of it. So I'll, you know, pull up the exploratory testing tools, start uh, playing with the app. If I hit a bug, you know, I can go back to the exploratory testing tool. Uh, it's been recording all of my actions, so I can capture kind of the key actions that represent uh, the bug that I want to file. I can file a bug, super simply take screenshots, just make comments on the screenshots that I've taken, um, and then file all of that. Uh, it'll be recorded as an exploratory test session with my recording. Um, it'll be, you know, all my bugs will be filed. I can create test cases if I've found a particular flow that I go, oh, crud, this is broken, and, you know, I filed a bug, but when it's fixed, I kind of like to have an automated test case that um, that will, you know, serve as a regression uh, test case for it. So I can, I can create a test case from, you know, from my exploratory testing view. Um, so real nice uh, pivot on on how to, how to do a much lighter weight testing. Um, we also did kind of as sort of I call a cousin to the exploratory testing is we said, you know, that's great for for kind of a tester or, or maybe even a, a business analyst who's pretty close to the product team, understands the user stories, understands the difference between, say, a bug and a feature request uh, versus right. by design, and, and kind of, you know, interacts pretty closely with the team. But, you know, back to this problem of building what I, you know, what I want rather than what I asked for, wouldn't it be nice if we could get the stakeholders, the, the users of the application, to actually try out the application as we go? Like every sprint, I'm producing, you know, a potentially shippable increment, right? So right. wouldn't it be nice if I could get somebody to try it out and give me some feedback on it? Yeah. So uh, we built this thing called the feedback tool, which has an experience a little bit like the, the exploratory testing tool, except it's much simpler. Um, it's got a similar ability to kind of just be this little sidebar while I'm using the app and allow me to real 
quickly and easily, take screenshots, annotate them, make comments. Oh, nice. I can do audio recording if I just want to talk through, you know, and say, hey, I really like this. Boy, I sure wish you would do this differently. I can video record if I want to show a particular flow that I want to do. So it, it's really a, a streamlined tool for kind of a stakeholder who wants to try out an app and just give some feedback on, you know, on whether that app is meeting their needs. Oh, that's awesome. Almost sounds like a little Camtasia built in there. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. That's very nice. Well, and we always find a way to let the user take a build out for a spin, but it's so hard to capture right. what happened. Yeah, yeah. You end up just sort of standing over them and taking notes. That's right. Um, how far do you spread that out? Like, is there really a mechanism to send this to a dozen users? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so what a, basically kind of a product owner would do is they'd go in and they would file a, a feedback request, and they'd send it right. out to however many users they want, and it would include kind of all the instructions on how to run the app. Um, and then when the users submit their feedback, it would get re- related back to that feedback request. So I can kind of see who's submitted feedback and who hasn't submitted feedback. It also kind of works in a more impromptu mode where, you know, I could just use the feedback tool. Like maybe you didn't even request any feedback, but, you know, I get a copy of the app. I try it out. I want to give some feedback. I just, I just pop up the tool, send in some feedback, and then it would show up, you know, as a, as an item assigned to you that says, Hey, Brian gave you some feedback. Uh, you know, we want to take a look at it. That's great. Surfing the web. Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of actor reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. So what's the footprint for the client? Are they just installing the app as per normal and this is just hooked onto the app? Or is it something they've got to run on their machine? Yeah, it is a tool that you run on your machine. There's a little feedback client tool that you install okay. on your machine. And we think there's there's a number of different ways that you do this depending upon the kind of app. Um, right. If you're testing a web app, then you know probably what you're going to do is install that the little feedback tool on your on your machine. You know, ne- you know, open your browser, navigate to the web app, and then just record and and do this as you use the web app. Hmm. If you're testing a client app, what's more likely is somebody set up a VM for you somewhere. They've already installed the app. They've already installed the the feedback tool, you just, you know, remote desktop to that to that VM, poke around with it, you know, play with it, give your feedback, and then and then you're done with it. All right, that that makes sense to me then. And, and I'm just thinking about what is it how high do I have to set the bar to let somebody do that, to to be part of that? How many people can it be? You know, as soon as you start playing with VMs, I need a lot of different VMs if I'm gonna have a bunch of people doing it. That's right. So for this go round, we were really focused on, you know, primarily on what I would call scenarios where you have a limited set of customers uh, or a limited right. set of stakeholders is, is maybe the right answer. So it's, it's really, I'd say, optimized for an internal IT kind of scenario, not a, 
you know, I'm an ISV and I want to run a beta and I want, you know, 10,000 people to try out my app. Um, you could, you could you try to use this tool for that. It's not really ideal for it. For that, you really want something that's a little bit more like user voice or connect or, you know, more of a, a broad reach kind of tool where I'm, I'm even less interested in a specific user's comments than I am in statistically tell me how many people like this versus that. You do voting, you know, you do all kinds of things where you're trying to get some aggregate metrics of what are the things people care about. Whereas this tool is really more focused on scenarios where you've got a relatively small number of stakeholders and you care about what exactly each each stakeholder thinks. Yeah, no, I'm thinking it's no more than half a dozen. Yeah, what I like yeah. about this is that it automatically collects data from the computer, you know, from the system, and and sends all that stuff back, you know, so you can improve the yep. the reproduce the reproducibility rate. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I really want the video of the guy interacting with the app at the same combined time combined with his comments. Yeah, and at it's the same time, the 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 you know what's going on under the hood. All that, all that system data. You need to know that. Yep, that's right. Yep, very cool. So the kind of the last thing I wanted to mention that we did uh, in 2012 that I thought was um, you know notable is again you know we think about this cycle of uh, of, of the app uh, you know call it build measure learn call it whatever kind of the the, the latest uh, sort of word for it is but. There's this continuous cycle of I have an idea, I build it, I deploy it, I get somebody to use it, they give me some feedback, I get a new idea, uh, or I refine my idea, I build it, I deploy it, you know, and, and you just go over and over again. And you know, for a while we've been very focused on really uh turning up the the the, the revolutions on that cycle, right? We want to make it so you can get through that cycle really fast. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of what I've been, I've been talking about various points on that cycle. And the, the last one I kind of want to talk about is um, more about now you've got that app deployed in production and people are using it and, you know, maybe they have some issues. Uh, every once in a while, we write an app that has a bug, right? No, and, no. Oh, very, very rare. Rarely. <laughs> That's crazy so talk. It, I know it is crazy talk. Um, we'd, you know, it'd be nice if you could get some telemetry out of the production environment, so that when people oh, yeah. are having issues, you have some visibility into what's going on. Well, in 2010, we introduced this capability um, called uh, IntelliTrace, which was the ability to capture traces of applications as they ran, ship the trace off the developer, and then dynamically debug that trace. Um, as uh, in kind of a historical fashion uh, in the developer desktop, disconnected from um, you know from the end user who's actually using the app, and you know all through 2010, people would ask us, "Hey, can I install this on my user's machine? Can I run this in my production?" We kept saying, "No, it's not ready. We you know we haven't gotten it to the point that it's really ready for a production environment." Well, that was a big investment for us in 2012, and uh, you know in, we announced that it is now ready. So. You can install the IntelliTrace collector on production machines. You generally still don't want to leave it on all the time, but if you're sure. having some kind of problem, you can turn the IntelliTrace collector on, and then when somebody experiences that problem, we'll have the trace. 
you ship that off to the developer, and uh, awesome. the developer can get that cool IntelliTrace debugging experience um, around the production experience. Um, you know, we also worked with the System Center team to enable uh, sort of collaboration between the operations team and the developers with a, a bridge between um, System Center Operations Manager and, and TFS so that when there's a production incident, um, uh, you know, something fired, a performance, you know, counter issue fired or, or uh, you know, a, an app diagnostic event happened, um, maybe it was event log, uh, you know, storm happened, you can capture that data can escalate that issue to development. The developers get kind of full visibility into all the data that was collected in the operations team. They can they can have a crew of an active conversation back and forth, suggesting you know workarounds, diagnostic techniques, additional information they want, and then ultimately communicating back. You know, hey, thanks, we found a bug, we fixed it. It'll be in you know the next following release. Uh, basically, being able to smooth out that. Um, that feedback experience between the guys who are running your app day to day and the, the people who are building it. That's awesome. Brian, I'm kind of in awe that we've been talking for 40 minutes and never said TFS once. <laughs> <laughs> Except in your bio. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, certainly a lot of the things I've talked about um, involve TFS. I mean, I did say, I think, TFS in the connection between System Center and TFS, but but you're right. You know, we think of, of really the Visual Studio application lifecycle management as a suite. It's a suite mm-hmm. of things that solve a set of problems. And I don't like to get too overly uh, caught up on the technologies or the pieces that help you solve those problems. I just like to focus on the problems that we have and, and how do we go about fixing them. But, I mean, Team Foundation Server, well, there's also Team Foundation Service now, right? Like, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. There is a tool back there that's important to this equation. That's right, yeah. So Team Foundation Server is, is kind of, as I say, it's kind of the core of this. It's the, it's the back end. It makes code review happen. It makes my work happen. It makes the system center integration happen. It makes the project management happen. It's where the feedback goes when you use the feedback tool. It is kind of the hub that ties all of this together. I'm glad you mentioned Team Foundation Service because that's you know, that's kind of um, uh, kind of a, a big future initiative for us. You know, cloud's going to be big someday. We all know that. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> Heard that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody wrote that somewhere. I'm not sure who it was. Somewhere. Um, but so you know, we've been taking Team Foundation Server and turning it into a, a cloud application that's just super easy to get started with, super easy to use but brings all the power of Team Foundation Server and does so kind of incrementally. So you can sort of adopt uh, that capability at a pace that, that fits your needs. But mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's www.tfspreview.com. Um, you go up there, you sign up for an account, you're up and going uh, literally within like two minutes uh, wow. to, to have your account running. Then you nice. can be checking in source code, planning your project with the Scrum project management, uh, creating test cases, um, you know, the whole nine yards is, is up there and, and you can get going on it. Uh, it's in preview now, hence the name, tfspreview.com. Um, we're working on, on bringing it out towards a commercial service. Uh, if you go, if you look at tfspreview.com, you can track our progress on that. We've got sort of a bunch of FAQs on, you know, what you should expect and when you should expect it. Uh, we've got a news feed up there now that, um, that where you can track sort of progress as we make it, but, uh, we got 
you know, tons and tons of people up there using it daily. Um, and it's growing by leaps and bounds every month. So it's, it's exciting. Wow. I'm looking. Um, and I, what's the relationship here or how, how do you position this relative to something like GitHub Enterprise? Yeah, well, so we should be clear. There's, there's certain, uh, let's talk about GitHub for a second. So there's GitHub, which sure. is a public site, which has both open source projects and uh, closed source projects that I can pay for. And then there's GitHub Enterprise, which is the name for their on-premises version of their product that I can buy and right. install, you know, sort of behind my firewall. So Team Foundation Server is our, you know, behind the firewall version. It's, uh, you know, it is, uh, got a ton more capability than GitHub Enterprise has. It's got, you know, the test case management stuff, the feedback stuff, the agile project management stuff. It has tons and tons of stuff. Um, that, uh, that GitHub Enterprise does not have. Uh, Team Foundation Service is kind of the analog to kind of the GitHub private project world. Um, again, more capabilities, better VS integration, quite honestly, uh, better Eclipse integration, better, you know, I think a better experience, color me biased. Um, and then, uh, CodePlex is kind of our analog to the GitHub public project. You, Codeplex, of course, is built on TFS, but it is a separate uh, solution right now. Um, over time, our plan, uh, I guess, what, last November, um, we moved the Codeplex team onto my team with a vision of, over time, merging Codeplex and Team Foundation service into a single cloud service that runs the gamut from sort of public open source projects through to, you know, kind of large enterprise closed source projects. So um, that's the direction we're headed with Team Foundation Service. Um, we've upped our investment significantly in CodePlex in, in recent months and have been driving a bunch of cool open source collaborative uh, experiences. We'll be bringing those experiences to the combined Team Foundation Service uh, CodePlex thing as those things come together. And, it, and it, I get the sense that the whole Team Foundation servicing is really not tied to 2012 at all. This is a separate effort. That's right. I mean, you know, clearly it's uh, it, it's got the 2012 bits up there. But the other thing is it is a service, and it, it follows a service life, life cycle, right? So we shipped 2010, then we shipped 2010 SB1 like a year later, and then like a year later we shipped 2012. And while that cadence might change a little bit, it's still a pretty, you know, it's an on-premises box product shrink-wrapped cadence. Um, the cloud service is a service cadence. We ship, we, we use a, a Scrum-based project management uh, sort of model to manage our development. We do three-week sprints, um, and our cadence is every three weeks at the end of the sprint, we do a production push with the work that was wow. done that sprint. So the Team Foundation service is updated every three weeks, and you know, sometimes they're modest updates where it might be some bug fixes and some minor tweaks. Usually every sprint there's a few, you know, a few nice features. Like this last sprint we added um, some new drag-and-drop capabilities to the Agile project management stuff that makes it easier for me to reassign work between uh, people and, and user stories during a, a, a sprint stand-up. Um, and, and sometimes there'll be big uh, releases like when we uh, announced or, or released the 
um, Azure continuous deployment capability uh, in, in June in our, at, at the end of our sprint. So, uh, but every three weeks, there's new stuff coming out. We watch customer feedback closely. And when people, you know, there's a lot of noise around, hey, we really wish you'd make this better. We schedule that for a sprint and we get that on there. Now, is there anything, be honest here, are there missing pieces in Team Foundation service that uh, just Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're on a journey and and the journey is going to take a little while. Um, You know, right, if if someone says, hey, who's Team Foundation service for today? Kind of what I say is it's for small teams. Um, Team Foundation Service today is not really designed for kind of large enterprise uh, integrated teams. Um, it's it, we haven't sort of put the capabilities up there yet that 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 kind of organization is going to want. So let's take examples. We, you know, our on-premises product has integration with SharePoint and mm-hmm. Project Server and System Center. Right. We've not done any of that integration on the service yet. We will. We just haven't gotten to it yet. In terms of version control? In terms of version control, everything's on the service. There's, okay. there's no limitations of what you can do there. Great. Um, you know, another example would be reporting. On-premises, we have a rich reporting capability with a data warehouse, SharePoint integration, Excel services integration. On cloud, nope. we got some canned built-in reports that, that you can do, but for now, it's very limited. Extensibility. Um, the on-premises product, incredibly extensible, incredibly customizable, can plug in sort of everything everywhere. The service right now, not so much. You can't customize. You can pick kind of whether you want to use Scrum or Agile or CMMI, but you kind of pick one of the stock templates and you use that. Um, over time, again, we'll be, we'll be providing the extensibility and the customizability on the service. We just haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, so, it's, a, it's a first attempt. It's... That's right. Yeah, one could. It's a journey. One could assume that those features are coming. That's right. Yeah. One should assume those features are coming. <laughs> it's just just a timing thing. Sure. Well, it's great. I feel like we can't wrap this up without at least saying the word DevOps because it seems to be floating around Microsoft these days. <laughs> yes. Yes. DevOps is a um, you know is is a hot term these days. Fundamentally, the way I think about DevOps is. It's uh, DevOps. I, th- I find people use it. I use the term. Let's just say I think many people use the term wrong. Um, I that's agree. Biased to you, perhaps. Um, I think about DevOps as an umbrella term that really talks about the relationship between kind of development and operations. And there's a spectrum from what I call traditional ops, which is the kind of all the way at one end of the spectrum, which is Hey, the developers develop something, they throw it over to the wall to the testers, the testers, uh, you know, test it, and at some point they throw it over the wall to the ops teams, and they're very siloed things, and, um, and, and they have very formal, you know, processes. They have ITL, uh, processes that manage the flow and the responsibility, and here's what each team does. That's kind of one extreme. Um, yep. you know, at the other extreme is what you would call no ops, and that is, hey, um, there is no ops team, there's no test team, the developers do it all. I build the code, I test it, I deploy it, I you know manage all the escalations, it's the developer's pager going off at three in the morning when um, you know when something goes wrong on the site. It is uh, there's no operations team. There is only kind of a core development team. And DevOps kind of covers the spectrum between those two. 
And, you know, different organizations with different business criticality needs and different cultures land in slightly different places um, on that spectrum. But to me, it's just piece, it's just a piece of the cycle that I described. And we're all right. about increasing uh, the velocity of this cycle. So DevOps is, uh, is as you said, um, a hot topic in Microsoft these days uh, because it is an area where we're really focusing on uh, on improving that slice of that of, of that important cycle. Well, I, I'm excited to see a sense of an iterative tool chain that includes operations that system centers and has some mechanism to to instrument an app and to feed that back into the the application lifecycle. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, thank you so much for talking with us, Brian. It's been a pleasure, and this is great news, great stuff, and it's a great story. No problem. Thank you. I really appreciate the time, too. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.